Hello, and welcome back to Research Matters. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, a communication specialist with UNICEF, and I'm joined today by Alessandra Ipince, who has coordinated this year's Best of UNICEF Research competition. Today, we're talking all things Best of UNICEF Research 2018, which features 12 of the year's most groundbreaking and innovative research for children around the world, from Brazil to Ethiopia and Thailand. We'll be talking about what research stood out and how Alessandra coordinated this massive effort to review UNICEF's Best of Research for Children this year. So welcome, Alessandra. Thank you for joining us today to discuss 2018's Best of UNICEF Research. Hi, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Great. So for our listeners, Alessandra joins us from IDS in the UK by way of Peru and has worked on social science research in the public and private sectors, doing research on such things like how schools manage floods in the Amazon, really interesting, and also working with NGOs on studying violence against children, devising unique research questions and methods for children specifically. Alessandra has spent the better part of 2018 reviewing, assessing, and selecting the winners of this year's Best of UNICEF Research. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, I joined uh, Innocenti around March 2018, so at the start of the year, and purposely to coordinate this exercise, which meant um, pre-filtering the submissions that we had received. To date, this is the year where we've received the most amount of submissions, and we ended up with 104 eligible submissions in total. And then what I had to do here was help Innocenti organize the internal review process and making sure that we had a good spread of expertise to review the the variety of submissions that we get. So this is the sixth year UNICEF Innocenti has produced the Best of UNICEF Research volume, which recognizes and highlights outstanding pieces of research commissioned or supported by UNICEF. To start off, Alessandra, what what else can you tell us about what stood out from this year's research? Well, as you mentioned, this is the sixth year we're running in this exercise. And what I've been hearing from people that have participated in it uh, in the previous years is that the quality has been increasing year to year. They really appreciate the the robustness of the methodologies that we're encountering in the submissions, um, the conceptualization of of the research questions and their exposure and communication with the current literature and the context in which they are doing the research. So I think it's been really valuable to to see how through, through this process, through these six years, we've seen how the research has grown and the quality has significantly increased. Particular attention has been paid to ethical considerations in the research, which um, UNICEF has further established a commitment to in 2015 when they published uh, the standards for ethical considerations in research and, uh, and evaluations. Okay, so this year, UNICEF Innocenti uh, did something a little bit different in that it was more transparent about its process publicly for selecting the best of UNICEF research winners. Um, and I think transparency is, is kind of crucial in an in, in approach for, for research. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what the selection criteria is and why it was important for quality assurance? Of course. So this year we decided to actually publish uh, the review, explain what the review process looked like Mm. um, to people who had participated. So obviously we've been in touch with the teams that have submitted uh, their research pieces and every now and then we'd get questions about how the review process works. So we decided to actually include it in the editorial 
you know, what the pathway of us getting to this short list of 12 of the best work we've seen in terms of research coming out of UNICEF in the last two years. What can you tell us about the review experience from a research perspective? And what do you think, what component of this process do you think is critical in supporting quality research? So I think um, the most important thing for Best of UNICEF research, and this has been a challenge throughout the six years, is that of course we receive a vast amount of research that focuses on completely different thematics, um, they have different methodologies, um, even the pieces we receive are also very different in, um, in length and in the, the level of detail they give us in terms of methodology, um, the findings and the recommendations that could come out of, a, of the research. So an important part of the process is um, standardising our assessment. So we have uh, assessment criteria and we talk through it as a team, how we're going to judge the pieces that we're reading. And what are you looking for specifically? We, so the most important thing within a research piece is the robustness of it in terms of methodology and the way it's uh, conceptualised. So we look for a sound methodology in terms of it being able to adequately answer the, quest, the, the question that the research is posing. So, of course, it has to be um, sound in that sense. It has, to make, it has to walk you through the process where you understand how the data is being collected and how that, in effect, answers what you need to know. Could you, uh, you mentioned ethical considerations earlier. Could you explain a little bit more um, about how you're integrating ethical considerations into this review process? So in the last two years, we decided to um, evaluate the ethical considerations in the Best of UNICEF research process a bit more thoroughly. Basically, ethical considerations have always been important to UNICEF, but as I said, in 2015, we published uh, the standard procedures for ethical considerations and approval. And since then, we basically wanted to contribute to take and understand that ethical considerations are not just a bureaucratic process or something that we need to, a hurdle we need to get through to get some research done. They are crucial to the work we do. So children's lives and children's safeguarding are a premise for the work and the research we do. So ethical considerations this year have been assessed almost as a filtering um, criteria. So we have five different criteria for evaluating the quality and robustness of the research, but depending on whether that piece of research, the submission itself, um, does respect the minimum standards for ethical approval and considerations, um, that, would that would kind of filter out pieces that cannot be shortlisted. So if any piece of research was deemed insufficient in terms of the ethical um, considerations it was describing, then it couldn't be shortlisted as a finalist. It's, it's a base, it's a no-go. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So enough about process. I think um, we should dive in to learn more about what stood out from this year's winners um, and uh, what, what was so interesting about the best of UNICEF research this year. So as in past years, this year UNICEF Innocenti has selected three pieces of research from the top 12 that deserve special recognition. And these reports came out of Kenya, Egypt, and Brazil. 
Kenya's report on uh, female genital mutilation, or FGM, cutting and child marriage among specific communities in Kenya, was one of those three. Brazil's research on the lives interrupted, adolescent homicides in Fortaleza, in six municipalities in the state of Sierra, aims to answer the question, why are adolescents murdered in Brazilian cities? And the third came out of Egypt's research on understanding child multidimensional poverty which is also something that we do research on here at UNICEF and Ocenti. So um, what can you tell us about what stood out to you in these reports and why you think these three deserve special recognition? So the Kenya piece was a mixed methods research that was um, highly valued by both our internal and external panelists for its focus on hard-to-reach communities, both pastoralist communities and border communities, communities in Kenya. Um, it was just very comprehensive in the way it conceptualized child marriage and female genital mutilation, as, as you were saying, by including religion, ethnic and uh, gender lenses into its process. And it did so in a very open way, prioritizing the uncovering of the nature of the phenomenon and really trying to understand and get down to what it's all about, and especially focus on what people's own perceptions of it was. Um, it was also really highly praised for its detailed attention to the ethical concerns um, of addressing such a sensitive issue. And it included really detailed information on how um, they devised a mitigation strategy. So in this sense, even though it was a highly sensitive topic and, and really hard to approach, um, they didn't shy away from interviewing adolescents. Uh, but it just was made sure to make a really careful ethical assessment of how to guarantee their safeguarding. Um, in fact, when you ask about whether the approach, of, the approach or the findings in a research are most important, I would say that this piece really helps to emphasize the relevance of the process. So, so Kenya's report on female genital mutilation, cutting child marriage, um, really had uh, an impressive mixed methods approach uh, in terms of research process. But what were some of the findings to come out of this report? How did, how did this unique approach uh, help us to unpack uh, the perception and views on um, child marriage and cutting uh, in communities in Kenya so that we can actually do something about it? So for a piece like this, like this it's, it's quite challenging to report or, say, summarise the findings because it, it had such an ambitious scope and uh, included so many different communities who are at different stages of uh, perhaps not, um, not practising female genital mutilation, uh, for example, anymore. Um, so, but... Generally, we could say that tradition was found to be one of the main reasons reported by the interviewers themselves of why they carry on with this practice. Um, and despite the fact that most interviewees also acknowledged that they uh, were aware of the illegality of the practice, they seemed much less aware of the health risks that, this, that doing this practice actually involved. And among the communities uh, that have see, uh, shown to reduce the practice over the years, um, such as the Maasai, who now have, um, in, through this study, uh, show a reported prevalence of about 50% of female genital mutilation, while other communities have it as high as 75 or 90% of prevalence within their communities, 
um, researchers found that um, the reason for the decline could be associated with uh, families where girls actually have more of a say regarding whether, whether they do and go ahead with this practice or not. And they also found that generally among um, interviewed uh, dads, uh, interviewed fathers, um, it was the younger generation who were mo most um, inclined to consider not going ahead with this practice. So I would say this really attests to the fact that newer generations may bring about the shift in reducing the practice. Mm. What about the Egypt piece? What stood out there? So the report from Egypt was um, found to be well conceptualized, particularly in its attention to make connections with existing policies and the social protection system. And it was found to make a really solid case for integrated multi-sectoral approaches uh, in response to child poverty. So specifically, the, the reviewers found that by including or, or placing the child at the center of their inquiry, it really helped show a more grounded account of what child poverty actually looks like in real life and how deprivation can affect many different dimensions of a child's life uh, and their overall well-being. So, you know, deprivations can, be, can relate to access to water, sanitation, housing conditions, uh, among many other. They all play a very significant role in what it is to be a child in poverty. So, importantly... Another um, relevant aspect of the way they approached the research is that they did it through a life course perspective. So it doesn't just make an account for children in general, but it really tries to dissect how experiencing poverty can be different at different stages in your life. So say for under five-year-olds, they found that <clears throat> nutrition and health deprivation were most significant. And for children that were slightly older than five, they found that perhaps it wasn't so much health, but it was nutrition and housing conditions that were most crucial to their development and well-being. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. And um, for those of you interested in more research on multidimensional child poverty, UNICEF Innocenti is leading in that area and provides a tool called MODA that helps look at the different dimensions uh, involved in multidimensional child poverty so that we can understand it better. And in fact, in our publication, we're, we actually feature another research coming from Indonesia where they also implemented this approach to child poverty. So they, they used the, the MODA approach. And lastly, um, Brazil's research uh, looking at why adolescents are murdered in Brazilian cities. Um, that sounds really interesting. What can you tell us about that one? This piece was, um, it was, it's just extremely compelling to read. Um, it's a very much, it was very appreciated for, for the fact that they were just addressing such a difficult and sensitive subject in, uh, and particularly so in high risk urban neighborhoods in the state of Serra. Um, so reviewers um, scored it really highly in terms of originality and its potential for impact for addressing this this, um, this subject. And what they did is that they combined secondary data, um, homicide reports, um, with, inter with interviews to families and relatives of adolescent victims, vict um, adolescents who had been murdered. And the findings were very originally presented because they started off each section by presenting the case of a particular 
adolescent a victim and through describing their life and describing what they had been through and uh, they then kind of traced back to connect the representative elements of that story to the data that they had analysed from wider sources. So this way of presenting the findings just made up for a really grounded way and of, of painting the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was very compelling in the sense it really drew, draws you in. Um, so with this innovative approach and then seeing to take this research to a, to a broader level of impact, uh, the team behind it was um, very much producing not just a research report, but also an advocacy piece. And in fact, it was very successful in in gaining interest from other states to follow suit. And, and there are plans now to to implement this uh, this approach in other states in Brazil. Ah, that's great. So moving beyond these six municipalities, it's uh, expanding countrywide, and it's a big country. Exactly. So, okay, so this report really helped to uncover some of the drivers and risk factors for adolescents in Brazilian cities. Right. And um, what are some of the risk factors? So in total, um, through this approach, they found 12 common elements. Um, some of them were um, children who had dropped out of school before the age of 14 and had found a way into having a job or an informal job specifically. Uh, that was found to be a, a, a risk factor. Um, children from poor neighbourhoods and uneducated families were at higher risk. Children who experienced conflict um, within the communities um, or even children who had, had um, an encounter with the law and had in fact been sentenced for breaking the law at some point in their lives, mm. among others. Right, okay. Moving on. While we don't have enough time to unpack all 12 of this year's Best of UNICEF research, as a bonus, I think we do have time to touch on one more that I think we both found interesting. And um, that report is Thailand's Review of Comprehensive Sexuality Education, uh, which asked the question, why are adolescents in Thailand not learning enough about sex? Um, So I think this was pretty ambitious in that it uh, creatively collected a lot of data to assess adolescents' understandings on sexual and reproductive health, mixing in quantitative and qualitative research. Um, what about you? What stood out to you from this report and its impact? And why do you think it deserved to make it into the best of UNICEF research? Um, so this piece, um, it was very much appreciated for its, its large scope and its care in including a variety of data sources. So it really took care in interviewing not only the teachers that actually convey the contents of and the curriculum of sexuality education, but also the students and the directors who could make decisions about curriculum within their schools. And they were particularly good at using uh, uh, creative methods to be able to include uh, adolescents' voice in the, um, in the research. And some, of, some drawings that are featured in the publication are, in fact, drawings that came out of this um, data collection process from the adolescents themselves. From the right? adolescents themselves. Yeah, they exactly. were drawing their understanding of sexual and reproductive health. Their understanding either of sexual reproductive health or of how it's being taught in school. Ah, okay. Interesting. And it was um, 
I remember when, when, when I read it and talking to some of uh, my other colleagues who also reviewed this piece, um, we found it quite effective in merging quantitative and qualitative data. This is not always neatly done. And um, it, they, they were really good at providing the broader statistics because they did survey a large amount of um, individuals in Thailand um, and really brought that data and that statistical data to life through the qualitative findings. Uh, so they did that very smoothly. And what was some of that uh, data that they drew out? What were the qualitative findings? So I think what was particularly what we particularly appreciated of the piece was um, its comprehensive understanding of how sexuality education might actually be implemented. So in reality versus in reality versus what is in the policy right. or what is expected in the curriculum. So of course there's a list of contents in the curriculum to be able to cover the full and in fact it's called comprehensive sexuality education, but that's not necessarily done fully. But it's not just a matter of how many themes are covered, but it's uh, they also try to report on how these contents were delivered and they kind of attest to the fact that there's there needs to be um, there's a bit of a struggle where teachers need to decide to either be more creative and perhaps effective in conveying certain themes but through doing it with creative methods may take just a slightly more time than a more traditional approach to a lecture goes where in fact you would be able to cover way more themes but maybe not get through to all of the students. Exactly. Okay. Maybe not get through to all of the students because the method is slightly less effective in getting the contents or in getting the students' appreciation of what the contents mean. So when you go for more participative approaches, uh, to, students would be more engaged and are perhaps absorbing more, that content more significantly. Mm. So it's a bit of a, a difficult balance in terms of how you want to convey that. And then they also, importantly, were also careful to assess what uh, teachers' own personal attitudes are towards sexuality and how that may be portrayed in the way they're teaching it. Right, the cultural attitudes towards sex and sex education were a big deal in, in forming the research question and the results, right? Absolutely, yeah. and that, that's what they found. They found that... Um, even in with the teachers respond, responding to their questions, they found that their own personal views of sexuality were coming through, and in general found that um, sexuality education was being framed within a, a framework of, of health and risk, but it wasn't. They weren't covering other important uh, topics that are in the curricula, like gender equality or sexual diversity. Right. And so obviously that answers a little bit of the question on why students aren't learning enough about sex and health education, exactly. reproductive health. Okay, well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for right now. Um, but luckily, the full report of Best of UNICEF Research 2018 is available on our website, www.unicef-irc.org slash best of UNICEF Research. Uh, you can also follow us for more updates on Best of UNICEF Research on Twitter uh, at UNICEF Innocenti and Facebook.com slash UNICEF Innocenti. 
We hope that you will download our report and continue to follow us for updates on research methods and highlighting the best of UNICEF research uh, this year and next year. Thank you, Alessandra, for joining us today. Thank you, Kathleen. Uh, it was a pleasure, and um, we'll see you next time.